are you are you ready are you set for for some podcast magic yeah i think i am all right so many so many so many damn books hello to the listeners out there in podcast land my name is christopher this is so many damn books a blessing a curse a podcast i am so excited to be joined today by christine grillo Christine is a writer and editor. Her nonfiction appears in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Audubon, and more. Her short fiction has been published in Story Quarterly, The Southern Review, and LIT, and other places. And she's here to discuss her incendiary uh, new novel, <laughs> Hestia Strikes a Match. This is an incredible book. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is, I just love the format of this. This is really fun i mean drinking while talking about books <laughs> exactly exactly and that's you know i had so much fun coming up with a cocktail inspired by your book so i'm calling the drink tea party redux because so this book is set in an alternate 2023 where a second civil war has erupted um, and states have seceded. And so I was thinking about, and there is a also a second tea party depicted in the book, which I absolutely loved and thought was very funny and also sad and too yeah. believable, like so much of the book. Um, and it got me wondering what tea was actually thrown into the harbor back at the original tea party. And right. so I looked this up and it was mostly, it was um, three types of black tea and two types of green tea. Um, so I took a black tea and I, and I love making um, tea syrups. I've done them for a lot of different cocktails already. So a black tea syrup, um, I used a Sushong black tea because that was one of the teas that they threw into the harbor. <laughs> Ooh, I love Sushong. That's so it's got that nice good. smokiness of a Sushong. Yeah. yeah. The rest is bourbon, Kentucky bourbon, because mm. that you know the I'm trying to bring bring the country together with this. You're drink. hitting all the notes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then um then limoncello, um some lemon juice, fresh juice always, and then peach jam, um yeah. and you shake all this up and double strain it, and it's really it comes into it makes a really lovely drink, and if you have singlo uh, or hyson green tea at home, that was the green tea that they threw into the harbor, so. Oh. You could you could make a green tea version of this if you wanted, um, and it would ha achieve the same effect. I love these sort of bourbon jam cocktails, and uh, and but it's I think it's still tart with the lemon juice. Yeah, when I saw your recipe, I thought peach jam. This guy's like really this is out there. <laughs> a jam jar cocktail is one of my absolute favorite ways to when you're finished with a jam jar yeah when you're all the way scraped and there's just like some left on the sides mm -hmm. of the that is when you put you know half an ounce of lemon juice two ounces of your favorite liquor and just wow. shake that up and you and you throw some ice in there you've got a cocktail That's plus you can take it wherever you want to go just put it in your bag put the jam jar right back on top right. oh that is really smart well <laughs> go catch a sunset <laughs> yeah i was not able to make um a black tea syrup but okay. i did um 
I did pour some bourbon in a cup and add some lemon and some brown sugar. And I plucked some mint, which I oh. very inelegantly muddled and put that in there. So that's pretty good. That's but, fantastic. I'm so <laughs> glad you're joining me. That That's lovely to hear. It's not peach jam level, but, you know, we're we're trying <laughs> with what we've got. Yeah. I used to only do this show with in-person guests and it made more sense to put where I would serve the cocktail to them. Um, and as we moved into this new format, I have tried to simplify, but I just had so much fun putting this together and thought like peach jam in particular would go so much well, so well with the limoncello and the bourbon. I don't know. I had a, I had a good time. I had you know, a good time. I, I loved the the tea party idea because that was such a fun scene for me to write, and I I just love that you picked up on the the tea. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the cocktail. I'm so excited to talk to you about your book. But before we get there, I like to warm up the book talk, talking. What did you buy? <laughs> bought any books recently have has anything been sent to you that you're really excited to check out or have you bought anything you know this is a whole celebration of consumerism it can be anything you've bought at all <laughs> well um i'll start with books um i have recently so i'm a big audiobook person and i love to listen to books i do my stupid health walks around the neighborhood every day and it's just so much less um, irritating, you know, to, to have that routine if I have a good book to listen to. So um, mm -hmm. I have recently, I'm listening now to um, Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton, mm -hmm. which I love. And one, one of the things I love about audiobooks is when it's a book that's not American, you get the accents. Yes. And um, so that New Zealand accent is so much fun. I love listening to that. And um, I, I remember listening to The Luminaries, her last novel, which oh. I never would have. I don't think I ever would have actually read that book. Um, mm -hmm. the, it was just so hefty and there were so many parts to it. But having it read to me and people, different people doing the voices, uh, luscious, mm -hmm. so much fun. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad to hear that the, the new book is also good on audio. It's really good. And I just love the whole guerrilla gardening. Um, I'm really you know, I have fantasies about taking over. I live in the city of Baltimore and I have fantasies about taking over these lots. Like I sort of drive slowly by the vacant lots <laughs> about the things that I could plant there. So um, I'm very keen on the guerrilla gardening. Yeah, before that, I um, I bought Eleanor Oliphant's is Fine, which is another great one for accents. There's so many Scottish accents, and it's not just Scottish, it's Glaswegian, mm -hmm. which is like the most Scottish of the Scottish accents. I listened to that too. I the the Gail Honeyman book. I that what a great what a great novel, and truly, it's such a performance. You know, it really is such like a and so, I really like a, a first person or like a very close third novel that yeah. is that is told like that. It, it's very yeah. satisfying. Yeah, well, you're going to be all literary and talk about the writing technique and I'm just like I love the accent <laughs> <laughs> um I've also bought um a really awesome pair of gardening gloves that go like above my elbow and Ooh. they're kind of suede and 
So that feels very good. I like yeah. that a lot. You can and, really uh, get into the soil with that. Yeah. And you can really be protected from a lot of things like sun and poison ivy. And yeah, so along with that, so this is the time of year also to get a new pair of clippers, you know, garden shears and um, my a knife. I have a gardening gardening knife, a hori hori. It's a Japanese knife. It's just mm. the best. Yeah. It's like serrated on one edge. Yeah. Upgrading your garden tools. That seems like a very springy thing to do. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I love tools. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a couple of things in the mail um, I picked up too that I'm very excited about. First of all, the new Paul Murray novel comes out in August. Mm -hmm. I absolutely, Skippy Dies is one of my um, okay. favorite, five favorite books ever written. Have you read his piece on the New York Mag um, about the metaverse? Like he, oh. he did this fantastic, like it felt like old school magazine journalism where he just spent weeks and weeks talking to people inside the metaverse trying to figure out like who is using this and why i highly recommend it it's very very funny and it also just speaks to how much of an enormous failure it is so there's some nice schadenfreude to be to be had oh, yeah, yeah schadenfreude's um, pretty delicious <laughs> yeah uh, so i i recommend checking out that um that piece i'll link to it on the episode page so you can get to it um but yeah, I, I, I was so excited when this huge, hefty, it's like 650 pages. Um, wow. And then I also got The Lost Journals of Sacagawea by Deborah Magpie Earling. Yeah. And I'm so excited about this. It's out from Milkweed Editions. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a fictional account of her life. And I'm just... <laughs> particularly excited as someone who loves the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, I really, really want to hear someone have her side of what it was like to be with them. Um, yeah. And I know that's only some, a small part of the book. I know it covers her entire life. So I'm really, really excited to check it out. Um, yeah. Very interestingly told. I'm already just like flipping through. You can see that um, she's playing with language in a really exciting way. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great recommendation. I, I will probably check out both of those. Um, I had, when I was young, I grew up near Richmond, Virginia, and I had this fantasy at some point that I would write about Matoka, um, Pocahontas. And um, yeah, I, I just, you know, the, in, the disservice done by all the stories told mm -hmm. about her that um, I'm not the person to write that book. So I'm glad that she wrote the Sacagawea. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I I'm, I'm excited about that too. Your novel. <laughs> that just strikes a match. It's was such a, I didn't know anything about it going in. It was truly like just off the stack and started reading it, which mm -hmm. is a fantastic way to encounter a book like this. And I was just immediately sucked in. Um, can you please tell the listeners a little bit the the synopsis of the book? Sure. Um, it's set now in 2023. We've um, We've just officially begun our second American Civil War. And the main character, Hestia Harris, is 
um, in her early 40s, and she's just been abandoned by her husband, who has left to go fight for the United States of America um, against the new Confederacy. And um, so a lot of the book, so the, the Civil War is actually the kind of a backdrop for the book. And the I would say the bulk of the book is about Hestia, who's a pretty immature 40-something, trying to figure out what to do about her loneliness, how to make friends, how to go on dates, how to connect with people and create a community. And um, being as she's kind of her own worst enemy, she makes it more difficult than it has to be. But um, <laughs> I think she finds a way. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I was really connecting to right away is that even for this horrible, violent backdrop from page one, it feels like there's like a seeking of joy. You know, there's, she's really like, it's not, it's not a doldrums book in the same way that like, it turns out that living through a pandemic, there's other stuff that you do and you find silver linings all the time. Um, but I, I, I just think still like living in the fictional world of your second civil war for the duration of writing a novel how does it feel uh to be experiencing that um walking around in that sort of particular authorly haze yeah um well it was that haze was really aided and abetted very well by the time you know the trump administration which is when i was writing the book and um, because I think every day we had some pundit somewhere saying, are we in a civil war? Mm -hmm. Are we going to be in a civil war? And so I think that was really on my mind a, a lot of the time. And I, I didn't, I felt like I didn't have to really stretch that hard to create that reality. It was just a little more real than, than the reality we had. So it was... It was really helpful for me. I, I tell a lot of people that I think the book was therapy for me because I started off feeling uh, just like disappointed in my fellow Americans and heartbroken and um, disenchanted with democracy and wanting to write about that. And at some point I was like, wow, I really don't wanna write a depressing book about <laughs> how doomed we are. <laughs> so um, I, you know, I turned to some satire and some humor and um, yeah, I, I think in the end, I just felt like, well, if we do go to civil war, like we still have to make dinner and go to work and mow the lawn. Mm -hmm. You know, and like the people who are funny when you're not in a war are the same people who are funny when you're in a war and everybody's still looking for love and friends. And um. yeah, I mean, it was such a compelling, I I don't know, bifurcation of the timeline uh, to be in. And I'd love to know a little bit more about how you went about creating this second civil war and these conditions. Was it something that you were finding as the chapters went or did you start with all of the concepts and sort of figuring out the reality um, before you 
were figuring out what Hestia was going to experience of yeah. it. I would like to say that I'm the kind of writer who writes the seven page world building document first, <laughs> but I'm really more like the writer who finishes, almost finishes a novel and then says, wow, I need to really figure out what this world is. And then I sort of went back. So I had created a bunch of chapters and scenes The the book is seven chapters and each chapter is a different boyfriend or romantic experience. And um, so I, I had written a bunch of those and I had just, the, the backdrop of the civil war that I created was just kind of what was on my mind at the time, the you know power grid going down or um, you, you know, pipe bombs in a van. And, and as I got more and more into the novel, I realized I really need to, to build this out more thoroughly and cohesively. And, and that's when I started doing my research and reading up about the first civil war. And um, I did, I did go on some Reddit threads. <laughs> <laughs> I say very sheepishly, <laughs> but it turns out there are a lot of people on Reddit who like to theorize yeah. about what would happen. One thing that I think Reddit has going for it is there's a lot of people with very specialized yeah. education and special interest that they are applying. Absolutely. And it's a great place when you're writing fiction because no one has to be right. <laughs> it just has to have the the whiff of being right. Mm -hmm. So um and then we would look at um you know, look at what's going on at in Palestine, you know, what is life like for a Palestinian? I would think back to the troubles in Northern Ireland. What was life like for Northern Irish? And um, and actually the show Dairy Girls, if you've mm. ever seen that, was really helpful for me in, um, in just that sort of tone of, you know, for people who don't know the show, it's it's about these high school girls living in North Ireland and in, in Londonderry, which they call Derry. And um, and it's it's like them just trying to live their normal high school girl lives, being the dumbasses that high school girls are. <laughs> but every now and then, like there's a bomb scare when they're on their way to a, you know, a field mm -hmm. trip or and so that watching that I was like that is really the, the kind of tone that I want like there are people just trying to do their lives and there's just very inconvenient and sometimes terrifying war that makes everything that much more difficult I loved how you use the war to create this sort of funhouse reflection like recasting dating apps in particular <laughs> into this new world um resonated yeah. I mean I I met my partner on a dating app, so I, I Aww. believe in them, but I also can see how horrible they would be in a situation like this. Um, and it is one of my absolute favorite scenes in the book where someone on, on a date with her misunderstands how she's casting her relationship with her husband yes. um, and thinks that because she's mad at him for leaving her, she's also mad at the union and, and is not part of it. Yeah. Um, and it's really one of these things that like, it was just so close. There's just, there's just like a, that little bit of, of turning it just to the left of, of how things truly are that made it really um, poignant and funny 
and sad. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, I, I tell this, I've told this story a couple of times at readings over the last few weeks. And um, so what you're talking about is the third chapter. And, um, but for me, I had a similar experience in real life that was really the spark for me of the book. And um, this was probably in 2018 or 2019, I caught up on the phone. I reconnected with an old friend from back when I lived in New York and we were so close. We would, um, we worked together and then we would go out for drinks at Old Town afterwards. And we, we were just really close and fell away after I moved to Baltimore, fell out of touch. And so we reconnected on the phone and very similar to what happens in the book, we were having a nice conversation. And then he said something about sheep. And then he said something about libtard. And, you know, when I was, when I tell this story at, um, at readings, you can sort of hear the gasp in the audience because they know where sheep is going and they right. know where libtard is going. It's, it's a horror movie. It's just like, get out of the house. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's so, it's so disorienting. And yeah. So that for me was like, I have to write about this because this is such a hard thing that we really haven't in my lifetime. I really haven't had to deal with before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That ideological split. Wait, you feel so betrayed. I felt so betrayed. Yeah. Especially because it, it can blindside you. Like everything else can be fine. And there's so many things that it doesn't touch. And it's true that it doesn't touch those things, but then it, everything gets colored a different, um, a different shade after that. Yeah. Another fun house reflection was just that Twitter in this world is like truly life-saving. Like you actually, like everyone's always saying like, oh, you don't need to read that bad news. But the bad news is like bombings within your like three mile radius. Right. Um, and so I, I was thinking about how useful um, the that those alerts would be and how real that was. I mean, I think the experience of reading this book reminded me of the experience of reading Severance by Ling Ma, oh. where it was just this incredible depiction, very realistic feeling depiction of a pandemic. And it wasn't just the pandemic. There was so many other things that were happening. And there was just like, uh, there was just those little things like people would be wearing masks that had a Supreme logo on them. And then all of those things came true. Right. And now I'm worried because this is a book that I got all those <laughs> same sort of feeling like, oh, that is how that would go. Yeah. Are, are you, <laughs> are you, worried that this reality is coming down the pike for us um i i get a little freaked out sometimes because I, it does happen i mean i finished writing this book probably a year ago april of last year was really when we had finished up the final edits and um i think it was in june or july that the um that we learned about the roe v wade um development in the Supreme Court and there was a really big mass shooting I think in Buffalo New York in a grocery store which mirrored something in the book and then 
And then there was some neo-Nazi plot to bring down the power grid in Baltimore. And all those things happened after I finished the writing of the book. And there were moments where I was like, let's just burn the book. (laughs) (laughs) We can't take any chances. (laughs) But, you know, the the fact is I'm really not that powerful (laughs) as much as we all want to have magic powers. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I do worry about it. But it's also, like I said, it's it's just only a little tiny bit realer than reality. So mm-hmm. I don't have to even be that creative with, <laughs> <laughs> with these scenarios. <laughs> That's just what every writer loves to admit. Oh, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't creative at all while I was writing my novel. I was just really good at keeping notes, <laughs> which I think a lot of writers, I was a very good note taker. I loved school supplies. That was always the best, right? It's like buying the school supplies in mm-hmm. August. Yeah. Yeah. Brand new notebook, brand new pens and everything. It'll be different this year. (laughs) I mean, I think that the reason why I was particularly thinking about severance um, was because I thought that Ling Ma did a great job of this and you do it as really well too, where you're, you're sort of creating this drama out of what we lack and then what we replace it with Mm. and how those like, how that give and take of the economy that like is so much starker in conditions like this. And so you can focus in on these little things like, like bourbon, like get, she yeah. gets bourbon at one point and it's this absolutely magical thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's so interesting that you bring up that book because um, Ling Ma and I share an editor. Oh, so- really? So both, so both the, our books were acquired by the same person. I'm pretty sure that Jenna acquired Ling's book. Um, so yeah, clearly we know what Jenna likes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this this idea of like, what is the bare minimum? Like, what is the bare minimum that brings you joy? Because I, I feel like one of the, you know, humans are so very, very terrible at so many things that are important, like, you know, understanding history and understanding depth and scale and numbers. We're terrible at numbers, but um, somehow we're super good at adapting. Mm. And um, yeah, I think it's the most remarkable thing we do is is how we adapt. And I so I think in Severance, you have those characters adapting to the situation at hand and Mm -hmm. not just adapting to it, but like developing their own ecosystem uh, and all the power dynamics within that ecosystem. I I really loved that. And, Mm -hmm. and, and so I, yeah, I think about that a lot too. Like you just, you just adapt to whatever is put in front of you. We're so good at it. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. I mean, and maybe that's part of it is, um, is we have to be bad at history in order to adapt, in order to keep adapting. Right. Well, and that, I think that adaptability is what has made us such a, (laughs) such a blight, honestly, (laughs) such a blight on the planet. It's it's just really hard to get rid of us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think we should get, be gotten rid of just yet. We're still right. creating some really lovely art. Um, yes. And so that's, that's something to be celebrating. Something that I loved, and we ha- I don't know how we haven't 
talked about this at all yet when it's an enormous part of the book, but um, Hestia is working at a retirement village. She has left her job as a, um, as a reporter mm-hmm. into this, into this retirement village. And they were so dis- these voices that you created and sometimes like got to write within were so distinct and lovely and a great source of comedy in particular. Mm-hmm. Can I'd love to hear about creating them and, and, and where, yeah. when the retirement village came into the picture. Yeah. Well, in the novel, Hestia, um, her, you know, when the war starts, her beat changes or her editors want different stories from her and she doesn't want to write the war stories because it's too depressing. And um, so she finds this job in a retirement village thinking the Confederates wouldn't bomb old people like that would be like, <laughs> so it's got to be pretty safe and they have a really good like surveillance system and so it feels like a safe place for her to work and and the old people so there are five characters really five elderly characters that we hear from one of them is Mildred who is her her best friend and then there are four other characters that we hear from um and I just loved creating them um I love that old people not not all of them but so many of them lose their filter Mm -hmm. and that is just my favorite thing about old people (laughs) and um so I feel like they get to say the things that everybody wants to say and um I do a lot of interviewing and um, for my for my job job, which is working as a science writer. So I interview a lot of um, academics and scientists. And I don't know if you've ever worked with academics and scientists, but they are not they don't give great quotes and (laughs) (laughs) they they tend to sound like robots when they talk except for when they're about over 70. Once they hit that threshold, then they just filter is gone and they just say what they mean. They're not going to hurt their hurt or improve their careers at that point. So um, these characters, well, one of the reviewers referred to them as the Greek chorus. And mm-hmm. I, loved, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's what I meant all along. They're the Greek <laughs> chorus. <laughs> um, and, and so they start off in the book explaining how we got here and how the civil war started and what's going on with it. But as we go throughout the book, they talk more and more about just life, about love and marriage and um, spirituality and the ego and pain and happiness. And so it was, I think it's sort of a fantasy of mine. I would just love to have five really smart, no filter 80 somethings tell me how to live. Just give me (laughs) the guidebook, you know? (laughs) I love that this is like a realization of a, of like a, of closely held, like a fantasy and of imagination. Like this is something that you actually want for yourself. I thought it was so brilliant to have these writing prompts that Hestia is giving them. Yeah. And then you include what they said to the writing prompt. I just think that that was, it was a great form to get these quick shots of truly, it almost reminded me of um, the onion when they have those like three of uh, man on the street faces that they've yes. used since the beginning of time yeah. that we, w- I would get to hear about, you know, their idea of love or their, their idea of loss or whatever, 
whatever sort of th um, prompt they were answering. I just thought that was great. Yeah. Well, I, and I don't know if you remember, but sort of around 2018 or so, when I started writing it, all of a sudden I was seeing a lot of ads for um, don't know what to get your mom and dad, get them this um, living history kit, wow. which would involve them, which would involve a lot of prompts that they could then like speak into a recorder or write down their answers to the prompts. And, um, and the commercials were very much centered on these kind of like heteronormative fantasies, I think. And um, so I started when I was writing, when I was first creating these characters, I didn't know that I wanted it to be an oral history project per se. But then when I started looking up some of these prompts and I just felt like, oh God, these are the worst, you know, <laughs> like, tell me, you know, tell me the happiest moment in your marriage and tell us what you loved most about being a parent. And, and I just thought there are people who don't have those stories to tell. There's, and so I really wanted, I tried to have that Greek chorus reflect back on, um, we, you know, some of us hated our spouses. Some of us <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I love that they hate the prompt sometimes where they're just like yeah. stupid. Like, I don't, right. They're like, let I'm us write our this. own prompts. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the reason that it works is because this novel structure is sort of loose. I mean... <laughs> In, in writing class, you learn, like, your character has to want something. Yeah. But Hestia, what she wants is amorphous. She doesn't know what she wants sometimes. And so that is, um, you know, the creative writing professors would be saying, no, no, no. no <laughs> but all the, of this is working. What are the stakes? Yeah. What are the stakes? Yeah. And, and yet, like, that... It, there's always something else that pulls you forward. There's like another great interaction with Mildred and, and the Greek chorus of elderly people, or there's another bizarre comedic <laughs> date, or there's the fireplace motif, yeah, which is one of my favorite things. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Because oh, it's sure. one of my favorite little um, re returning things in the book. Yeah. So Hestia is, um, is the daughter of two classics professors. And um, Hestia, of course, is the Greek goddess of the hearth. Vesta is her Roman counterpart. And um, so I don't I don't make that big a deal about it, but um, she does, she's living alone in this apartment and she has a non-working fireplace. It's just a mantle. Mm -hmm. And um, I've seen a lot of people put like televisions in there, but um, she, pretty much with every boyfriend she's like I know I have to get rid of what's in there and put in something new so it, it starts off with just candles and then she moves into you know vases and dried flowers and then uh you know p there's pinatas and birdhouses um, was a good one right birdhouses and so with every boyfriend she kind of sweeps out the old from the fireplace and sweeps in the new and um so I think, although Hestia doesn't know this, I'm hoping that the reader comes to know that what she's looking for is some sense of home and some sense of, of what that hearth fire is. And um, 
Yeah, I really struggled with what she wants too, because um, when I first started writing it, it was just a given like, oh yeah, she's single. So now she wants to to find someone. Mm-hmm. And because that's what you do, right? Like you break up, you grieve for a little while, and then you start dating again. And, but when I was writing it after a while, I thought, why do people want to date? I, I, <laughs> I, I forgot, you know, like I was so deep in writing it that I forgot why people want to date. And of course, when you're in your twenties, it's just like, man, you just want to find someone that's just, you don't even need to think about it. It's such an atavistic urge to be partnered up with someone. But then as I was talking to friends in their fifties and sixties, and one of my friends who's 70, (laughs) one of my friends in her seventies, who's been married twice said, no, I think I've done my bit by the husbands of the world. I don't need to do this again. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. So, so I, in addition to finding myself struggling with why do you want to pair up? Hestia was struggling with that too. And and she did seek um, insight from other people in the book about why. And I just, you know, everybody has a different reason. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there are, there's just uh, so many other tensions in the book uh, to pull you through when those I never felt a lack of plot or a lack of something pulling me forward. Um, it's just sort of interesting that when I finished reading it, that you sort of realized that it's something that you only come to come to realize how it worked afterwards, which yeah. is a cool thing. You mentioned this, the parents, and it is like the other, it's like the third piece of the if there's three things if it's the dating life and the relationship with the people and the retirement um village Mm -hmm. the third thing is her relationship with her parents and it is a really fraught difficult one because they find themselves not aligned with anybody but they're a little bit more angry at liberal mind speak um can you talk about this parental difficult parental relationship and, and putting it at the forefront? Yeah. Um, so, you know, people have asked me, why did you make the parents college professors? You, you know, that's such an unusual background for someone who's leaving the union for the Confederacy. And it's like, well, I don't think it's that unusual. I mean, there's no monolithic confederate or conservative mindset there's a lot of different kinds of conservative people mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean I really liked creating the parents because I got to think outside of stereotype of you know it's not they're not the people wearing like the coonskin caps and they're not the people you know <laughs> wearing animal furs or you know it's 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 not that like MAGA crowd. It's it's people who are, her parents are intelligent people who are just, they've, they're just offended by what the liberal ideology is asking of them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, they feel like the, the liberal ideology has just gone a bit too far and now they feel insulted and offended by that. And, um, so I, I really wanted to be compassionate with them 
as I think Hestia tries to be, or at least by the end of the book, she's feeling more compassionate toward them. Like these are, you know, people who are aging and, you know, they want to, con they sort of estrange themselves from her in the beginning, but, but that relationship evolves too. Right. Well, I mean, they're, this is this was what was so heartbreaking to me reading it was that they really wanted to connect and they have this idea of who their daughter is yeah. still in their head and it is a it it is not who she is anymore and so I don't know I I was I was feeling that but I was also just heartbroken heartbroken when they kept having these interactions where they everybody walks away like well that wasn't how I wanted that to go <laughs> right um someone asked my editor jenna what was the scene that you read that make you made you want the book oh and and i love the answer that she gave yeah which was um she said there's a scene toward the beginning when hestia gets picked up from the train station by her mom and and they're driving to her parents house and they get there and there's a big sign in the yard that says something like make liberals cry again <laughs> in the yard. And she sees this sign. And instead of saying anything about the sign, she says, your tulips look really nice, mom. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently that, that scene really resonated for yeah. her. And because and I do think, and I, I have a lot of exchanges like that with my own parents where it's who are very conservative and live in Virginia outside of Richmond. And there's just, there just comes a point where you just can't, you just can't talk about it anymore. You, you make a decision like, am I going to be with these people in my life or not? And if you are, then you got to skip to the next topic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, something that your book makes clear, though, is how difficult that is, because everyone sort of goes into these interactions with that idea as a ground rule, but everything ends up, it's like we I was saying, like, everything ends up touching it, and you think it won't. You think you yeah. can keep something separate. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> this book is super funny. <laughs> I, I feel like we just uh, talked about how um, difficult it is, but it. I just... It, it really is a um, it really caught me by surprise over and over with how funny it is. Um, and you recommended a book that also has an interesting parental relationship at the center is also a very archly funny um, good behavior by Molly Keene. Can you tell me about why you um, suggested this book and, and, and how it came across your desk? Yeah. Um, I just a very, um, dear friend here in Baltimore, also a writer, um, very arch, Jim Magruder, recommended this book to me. Um, and and I love his recommendations, which is why I read it. And um, it, it's just so delicious. Like that's the way I describe the writing of Good Behavior. It is so delicious to have a character who reveals so much through her total lack of understanding of what's going on around her. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I was fascinated by the um, sort of background of this book that was published when she was 77 years old yeah. in 1981. 
She hadn't published a novel in 30 years. Yeah. And then this one was nominated for a Booker Prize, but she lost out to Salman Rushdie's Midnight <laughs> Children, along with Muriel Spark and Doris Lessing. So that's, yeah. you know. She good, was in good company. Good loser that. company there. Yes. Um, but a 30-year gap, yeah. it was enough for this book to be not connected to the she wrote 10 other novels right so there was just like no one thought of her as the writer of those books they were like this is a completely new i just can't Im like and this sat in a drawer she thought it was nasty she told her friends not to read right. it <laughs> she she tried to sell this book and and no they right i think what the rejections said something about it's too nasty we can't do this and then 30 years later, someone said, why don't you try again? And it worked, <laughs> which, yeah, I, I love. And actually, you're right. When I think about that, a 30-year gap, like that's a that's a, um, a young adult who's never heard of her before. And then suddenly there's this book to read. And it yeah. just, the era that it captures, I love that era of like, um, what is it like crumbling aristocracy and all the horses and hounds and foxes? And <laughs> I think my favorite thing was this sort of cliffside house, this yeah. gothic manor that I just thought of as like leaking and falling apart um, that they sort of re retreat to. That was also apparently extremely based on her own life on and on on the end of it. Uh, yes. The, that sea house was based on on some amount of reality yeah. but also the center of this book is like skewering and laying bare at the same time the 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 family's fall you mm -hmm. know it's and those details they can be like excruciating and delicious too but also i mean you just have to be up for reading about some rich people problems too <laughs> You know, they, we, we really, you really have to care about what he's doing with the horses, um, which is, which, you know, your mileage may vary. Yeah. I, I it is sort of, sort of a white Lotus kind of novel, really like just how tasty it is to read about rich people being utter assholes. Right? <laughs> and truly this writing, I mean, I, I was always thinking how she's, she never goes for the cliche. She always turns a cliche or or goes one further, something sharper than a cliche. Yeah. Where you actually kind of feel the lack. You know that there could have been an like a more stock phrase there, but she went somewhere else. And so you feel her like I know. ducking and weaving. <laughs> I know. The the sentence level writing in that novel is so amazing. I mean, there are just sentences that I wanted to read over and over again, you know? Even something, oh, I, I text my friend Jim who recommended this. I found myself texting him lines from the book as I was reading. Right, right. Right. And um, and there was this one line where I guess they had a lawyer who was always bringing the family woodcocks, mm -hmm. you know, which people would cook and eat. And there's this this line where someone says, well, we should let the servant have it and um, for father because Rose knows 
how to cook his woodcock. <laughs> <laughs> she knows the right way to cook his woodcock. <laughs> it's just, it's like lines like that said, delivered so deadpan, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just deliver that line and you keep going. And I, I just, it, it's so, it's the kind of book I felt like where sometimes you have to read it a few times, the, the, mm. the lines, yeah. Yeah, this, this is sort of like quintessential NYRB release, like a sleeper thing that you, when you actually get into it, you realize there's so much to dig into. Yeah. Well, and just that era that I didn't really know very much about where you have all these British aristocrats living in Ireland in these big houses and, but they're like slowly or maybe quickly losing all their wealth, spending right. themselves out of existence. And, um, and those big houses get really cold if you don't spend the money on heating them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How does this, a book like that, you you say you like to reread things. Um, how does this book fit into your reading life? And what is your reading life these days? I have a pretty, I think, fairly eclectic reading life lately. I, um, I recently read Heartburn by Nora Ephron for the mm. first time. And I was blown away because... I don't know if you know this, but the movie was pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but the book was so good. And yeah. I, it's been a while since I've read any Nora Ephron, but um, getting reacquainted with her, I just thought this is this is so sharp. Mm. But then on the other hand, I've recently read, um, I like nonfiction too. I really enjoyed... Um, Braiding Sweetgrass. Are, are oh, you yeah. That book? Yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. And um, I like books with kind of a science y uh, lean to them. Well, I feel like we've already, we're moving straight into uh, one of my favorite portions of the show, which is just recommendations. We're in it now. Did I jump the gun? <laughs> no, it's okay. It's good. Okay. Um, it seems like you're writing about science background fuels this sort of interest um it's i think it's interesting that hestia doesn't have that sort of science yeah it, this seems like it was kept separate for you yeah it it was um hestia was a kind of a, a a different compartment for me where i got to write about someone who doesn't know that much about science. And, and actually there were moments in the book where I had to intentionally make her less knowledgeable. Like she doesn't know what kind of tree she's looking at, right. for example. And like, I, I know a lot of trees. <laughs> I know what a lot of the trees are. So I would go back and say, no, she doesn't know that it's a sycamore. She has no idea. Mm. So, um, so that was was kind of fun, um, but I I got to to investigate with this book something that I don't normally investigate, which is is history, and and that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoy a a daily newsletter by a historian and professor named Heather Cox Richardson. I don't mm. know 
have, I think a lot of people have not heard of her, but she teaches history in, I believe it's Maine. And she does this daily newsletter that started during the Trump administration, where she would just sort of sum up all the news that happened that day. Like, here's mm. what's important. Here's what's less important. Um, here's what it means. Here's where it fits into history. And I still get that newsletter. And I mean, and her perspective on what's happening now is very much informed by civil war and reconstruction, because I mm. think that's her, her mm -hmm. special thing. That sounds like a great, a great resource. <laughs> yeah, it is a great resource. Um, but I don't want to like, um, paint myself. I, I am a, I'm a, like a, dirty liberal fiction reader like that's my <laughs> main thing. right i mean right. i i buy the novels <laughs> so do you have any novel recommendations well like i mentioned earlier I, i'm reading burnham wood i i really enjoyed that i recently read liberation day by george sanders which was um which i love everything he writes but I also recently read his nonfiction book, um, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, which is um, where he takes a Chekhov story. At yeah. There's a different Chekhov story and he explains why it's so great. That is a truly magical book. And it's actually uh, what, when he came on this podcast, uh, talked about. So if people want to go and check that out, it's a fun episode from a while back now. And then if you like audiobooks, well, you know, strangely, some of his books are not easy to listen to mm -hmm. because so much of it is visual. I think you, you need to see it to understand it. Right. Um, but Liberation Day, I thought, worked really well on audio. And they get these great actors to do the voices. They have yeah. Michael McKean and Tina Fey. And so that's really good. Yeah, that was that was great. Um, yeah. Um, I read a really funny book called We All Want Impossible Things by Catherine Newman. Um, it, it sounds sad because it's about um, a friend who's dying, but it was really, really good. Um, I have read, um, oh, I, I just love Secret Newness. I read her books. I, I recently read The Friend, mm -hmm. um, which I had put off for a long time because I've got the sense that it was about a dog. I was like, I don't want to read about a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Not reading about a dog. <laughs> but then um, I, I finally did get it and realized it's not about a dog. It's about... Um, it's about writing. It's about mm -hmm. the just the the need and the 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 difficulty of being a writer and friendship. And it was just I, I love her. Um, yeah, that that's a great book. I mean, I, I'm the opposite. I love any book about dogs. So um, <laughs> any book that features an animal, actually, I want to recommend a book um, by Shelby Van Pelt. A remarkably bright creatures and it's uh -huh. about a, a a octopus in an aquarium and the sort of characters that are all connected to the octopus in various ways but you're mostly following um someone from the janitorial staff oh, wow. who who is connected to and and you just follow it's very 
it's a very sweet it feels sort of like reading an indie film um i could i could see this movie um premiering at sundance but yeah remarkably bright creatures by shelby van pelt i i was totally taken aback my my mom actually recommended it to me and it was a great recommendation okay. so thanks to my mom yeah thanks to christopher's mom um <laughs> yeah i i have been i have become aware recently of octopuses or octopi um and how incredibly smart they are and I'm a little sad about it because I I do love to eat octopus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, I I don't think I can do that anymore. <laughs> I think that's the ultimate power move is to go and take that book to a raw bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's see how that goes. <laughs> I that is not part of my recommendation. Don't. <laughs> don't do that uh but things that you should do is threefold the first thing that you should absolutely do is go and support this show on patreon patreon.com smdb even if you pay just a dollar you can join in on all the fun including a book club and special episodes that are just recorded for the patreon patrons really fun stuff also, the second thing that you should do is rate the show on iTunes. I really like when that happens. It's good for the algorithm and good for the health of the show. And the third thing that you should absolutely do is to go buy Hestia Strikes a Match. It is such a great novel. Christine, thank you for hanging out with me. This has been a blast, and I'm so glad that you had the time. Yeah, I am so grateful that you've invited me, and I am now halfway through with my bespoke bourbon <laughs> drink, <laughs> which is great oh my tea party redux is long gone so now yeah. I, i'm feeling pretty good <laughs> well I'm, I'm saving that recipe and i'm <laughs> looking up that george saunders episode <laughs> for sure <laughs> wonderful 